humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for You know, I'm I'm always collecting uh, 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 straws in the wind. This is a straw in the wind time here tonight. Do you mind, gang? Want I ever tell you about this friend of mine? Yeah, I know this guy. He must be 112 years old. And, uh, yeah, he's, he has voted in every election since he was 21. And that was about the time that, uh, oh, uh, Tyler was running. Uh, although he says it's possible that it was Polk. He can't quite remember back to those days. But uh, he was uh, he's voted in every election. He's about 112. And uh, the other day we're sitting there and I said, uh, you going to vote Chester? Yep, sure am. I said, well, uh, which way is it going to go? I mean, who are you going to vote for? Ain't talking. I said, you're not talking, Chester. What's the matter? You... you, you don't want to tip which way uh, your private uh, pole inside your head is going, huh? Is that it? Are you afraid of repercussions, huh? Yep. Ain't that ain't it. I said, well, what is it, Chester? Well, I'll tell you. I ain't never voted for a winner yet. Damn it, I don't know what's the matter. Ain't never voted. Every, every guy I ever voted for lost. Going all the way back to Tyler. Yes, tip a canoe and Tyler, too. And I remember I voted for the wrong guy in that one. I ain't never voted for a winner, and I want to vote for one winner before I leave. <laughs> well, Chester, uh, has it occurred to you that you are an absolute uh, a bell cow? That if I knew who you were going to vote for, I would know then, perforce, who's going to win the election. Yep, that's true. But I ain't saying. 
You know that I, I think a commercial. Uh, you know, you know, there's thousands of commercials that come out with the pain, uh, the painkiller stuff. You know, they're always uh, for the minor pains of arthritis. And uh, most people who have arthritis will tell you there ain't nothing minor about the pains of arthritis. But they always have the minor pains of arthritis, whatever that is. <laughs> That's like the uh, brief inconvenience of a stroke. However, uh, nevertheless, <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, but uh, I, I would like to say here, though, that in the case of the uh, case of the election, uh, that the uh, my friend who who has never voted for a, a winner, uh, have you ever voted for a winner? Well, some people are proud of the fact they've never voted for them because because you know there are some people who believe that losers are always on the side of the angels. And, of course, there's other people who believe that winners are always on the side of the angels. Now, uh, I, <laughs> I don't know, you know. Do you, when, you, when, you feel, when you vote for a winner or a loser, do you feel like you personally have won or lost if you lose? In other words, uh, if your candidate doesn't win, in fact loses, do you feel you personally have lost, like you've lost at Monopoly? Well, it depends on your own personal makeup, I suppose. I mean, you, you may get truculent for weeks you know, <laughs> and uh, walk around mad, you know. What kind of a dumb country we're living in? They elect a cabbage head like that. You know, of course, you're, you're the guy you were voting for was not a cabbage head. He was a pumpkin head. So, uh, <laughs> you know, we're all in it together. <laughs> we're all weak, <laughs> I'll tell you. But uh, this is, uh, you know, all part of the, uh, part of the scene that I... Uh, I was talking to my friend. I says, you know, voting for a winner, it uh, must not, uh, you know, it must. You don't want to break your string, though. At a certain point, when you've been voting for losers all your life, you'd hate like hell just before you check out to wreck a perfect record. You <laughs> to vote for a winner. Either that, I suppose. There's always one guy says, I always want to go out on a on an upbeat, uh, you know, go out on an up note. But uh, we're sitting there. I'm talking to Chester, and I said, Chester, how do you think things are going in the country? Chester's 112, 115, something like that. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, how are things going, Chester? What way do you mean? I said, well, Chester, I mean, tell me how you think things are going. You know, you always hear that. They're, they're always taking a poll. Do you think things are getting better in the country, or, or are they getting worse in the country? They're always doing these silly, stupid polls. And they're all and, and Walter Cronkite actually reports them with a straight face. So uh, what about it, uh, Chester? How do you think things are going? Damn foolishness! I said, Chester, now wait a minute. Things you must have some idea about this. Eh, things ain't never been good. They ain't never been bad. They just continue to go. Nothing changes really, except my crick in the back. I get a crick once in a while, you know what? Especially on Monday. I said, Monday? Why Monday? Damn if I know. He'll excuse my French. He always talks about, you know, excusing his French when he uses the word damn. But I don't know whether they use that word in French. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. So uh, I, I've always felt that copywriters could really get to the heart of the people. If, they, if uh, you know, you got this guy standing there and he's holding up this, he's holding up this bottle of this stuff, you know, Dr. Uh, you know, Dr. Ebenezer Bullard snake oil. See, he holds it up there, and he says, this is for your crick in the back. 
Said, well, now, I think a lot of people would understand that. <laughs> this is for the crick in the back, you know, instead of uh, muscular discomfort. That's a crick in the back. you got a crick in the back, and uh, <laughs> you like that? <laughs> You're watching me do the commercial there. <laughs> people would say, by God, i got to get some of that down at the drugstore. Uh, I like that crick in the back. And, uh, you know, Chris, uh, speaking of drugstores, they're magical places anyway, you know, the drugstore. Have you noticed that old guy that keeps pushing that Crest toothpaste? Uh, and, and, you know, he doesn't seem to sell anything else in that drugstore. And, uh, no, he's got all these people that come in that are constantly worried about fluorides. And uh, he's there, he's got piles of Crest all over the place. Now, I think one of the funniest commercials is this lady that comes on, and uh, she says now she can get back to her gum chewing now that they've developed a gum that doesn't stick on her upper plate. And, uh, have you ever heard that commercial? Oh, sure, yeah. And she's interviewed. She says, oh, I used to envy them people who could chew the gum, and now they come out with this uh, gum, this free dent gum, don't stick on the plate, and I just go back and I chew now. I just, I'm catching up, you know, for lost time. Can't you see this bimbo sitting over there chewing away like a... <laughs> I mean, unconscious humor. So I said to Chester, you know, me and Chester, we get along pretty good. I, I, I keep plumbing Chester's mind because I think that if you talk to somebody who, you know, has been around for 112 years, you may learn something. Now, that's not a popularly held view in America who believes the younger you are, the more intelligent you are. No, 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 that's a popular view. Not yours, of course. A uh, popular view is uh, youth is in itself a form of wisdom. So, <laughs> and so, so, uh, old Chester, see, he don't, he don't buy none of that, because well, he doesn't buy anything, actually. So, uh, I said, uh, Chester is of the school of thought, and there are millions of Americans like him. So I said, uh, Chester, uh, who do you favor in this election? Don't matter. I said, what do you mean, don't matter? Ah, they're all crooks. Now, that's a popular, <laughs> a popular Chester view. Everybody's a crook. You've heard that. Uh, Chester then comes up with another Chesterism. I said, well, Chester, uh, you know, I, I think that's a little cynical. But it, it, it don't matter one way or the other. We, we get along, you know. Who, No matter who gets in. Now, that's true. That's very true. Uh, we'll get along, but that don't mean how we'll get along, but we'll get along. So what uh, Chester says, uh, we get along. I said, well, Chester, what, what do you think... Uh, is the most interesting time that you can remember living in. He thought about that. Well, I'll tell you, they was all boring. I said, Chester, did you tell me that they were all boring? Well, yeah, sort of boring. It's sort of fun, too. I mean, you know both. Sometimes it's boring, sometimes it's fun. Depends on whether or not they got, they got anything going on down at the picture house. I said, oh, I see. Whether they got a good movie or not determines whether that's going to be a good week for you. Oh, no. He said, I don't go to no picture. I said, just like to see them people going in. Some dumb-looking people line up in front of them movie houses. I'll tell you that. I've been going down to movie houses to watch the people that goes into movie houses ever since Paula Negri was a girl. <laughs> she was quite a girl, too, I'll tell you that. And uh, I remember Theda Barra. Now, I remember the first time I went down past the old Orpheum. And there was a crowd waiting to see this uh, Theda Barry. She's what they call a vamp. Well, you should have seen the nutty crowd waiting in front to see that one. 
I said, well, that must have been interesting. You never went in to see the picture. I just like to see them dumb people wearing them funny hats standing in front of the movie house all the time. It's the same, you know. Same people are standing in front of that place called the Cinema 2, I believe. They call it down there. That same crowd standing in line there with them funny, funny pants and the dumb shoes on. And they're waiting in line there. I said, well, you're talking about the art form of our time, Chester. The cinematic adventure is the art form of our time. It is the mosaic of our day. It is the tapestry of our era. It is the majestic sculptor of the 20th century. See, yeah, and a lot of that's pretty damn foolish, too. I've seen some pretty dumb tapestries in my time. That's Chester, please. You're impossible. Yeah, that's true. I think everybody is, basically. When I thought of, uh, you know, Chester saying about about the... Uh, I'll tell you what I think is, is, the, is the dumbest... Uh, I think the dumbest uh, development of our time. You really want to know what I personally think is the dumbest development? It's the insensate desire that people have to buy totally useless junk. This is the first time in the history of man where people have had so much money, and yet they're still complaining that things aren't going well in the country. They've got so much money, they can buy pet rocks. I mean, <laughs> they can spend money on, on dumb games called unemployment. They can, uh, they can buy uh, Winnebago's and campers, and they buy their kids Winnebago's and campers, and they buy their kids' kids Winnebago's and campers, and they just go on and on. See, And I think this is one of the great, really, movements of our time. The useless crud movement. Now, I'll give you a great example of that. Now, here. Full-page ad. Look at that. Full-page ad. Do you know that you can now buy... Listen to this. This is, this is uh, for people who have more sense. <laughs> and, and, and let's say more sense than your average walking-around flea and more money than your average walking-around very successful man-eating lion. Here's a... Here's a if you want to spend... $50 right now, you can buy an actual segment, a little piece, of the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. Now, wait a minute. Just a piece of the cable. What they did was replace the old cables. And they put new cables on, so they sold each little piece of the cable, which is about an inch and a half long, and uh, plated them with some kind of cockamamie gold plate. And they sell them for 50 bucks a shot. It's his own piece of history. That opens up a fantastic, uh, tremendous vista of cockamamie stuff. Just imagine now if they, if you know, the the New York City uh, paving department, the sanitation department decides it's going to pave uh, Utopia Parkway. Right? You've been on Utopia, right? They go out to Utopia Parkway and they get these hammers, these jackhammers. See, and you know what they're always doing? They're always chopping up the street, right? Do they realize they have priceless objet d'art piled up in that great big truck that they're going to dump over there in the dump? Those, every one of those pieces is a genuine piece of the Utopia Parkway. Why, do you know that you could sell that to displaced New Yorkers all over the world? All you do is take this chunk of concrete, you know, and you mount it on a piece of uh, plastic ebony. Not the real ebony. No, uh, you know, the type of person that I'm talking about finds wood itself distasteful. 
he likes imitation wood. That's real wood, you know. He really likes this imitation stuff, you know, the wood they put on the inside of cars and all that that comes with a little sticky paper. You can see <laughs> he likes that. So, uh, nevertheless, you mount it on imitation wood, see, a piece of Utopia Parkway, and you a little chunk of concrete there. And uh, underneath it, you put a little plaque. Historic portion of Utopia Parkway. Removed from its original position, 1976, December 12th, an authentic piece of old New York. And then you have it signed in ink, you know, on the bottom, Mayor Abraham Beam. God, you could sell millions of those. How's that for an idea, gang? What about 50,000 little guys named Manny are running out right now buying pieces of Utopia Parkway? <laughs> And you know nobody knows what they what they're going to do with this stuff after they get it. See, that's the trouble. You get a piece of uh, of the Golden Gate Bridge, and you know your first moment of excitement when you get it. You know, you look at it and it has a little plaque on it, says Strands of History. It says 1936. They built this bridge. That's when they put the first wire up, apparently. And now you have a piece of it. At first, is exciting. Then after that, it gets. Uh, a little irritating because uh, it's beginning to gather dust. Then sets in the third and the most final stage, a feeling of total foolishness because you did it. Fifty bucks. Remember, we're not talking about something you can buy for a quarter. <laughs> well, all right. I have a friend. I'll tell you. I'll tell you a little story about about buying stuff like that. I have a friend. Now, I, this is a, this is a, in a sense very sad. But I have a friend who can't resist. That stuff you see in the back pages of the New York Times, the Sunday Times. You know, the silly section back there where they're always selling uh, old stuff like uh, uh, surplus flamethrowers. <laughs> and underneath this makes wonderful flower pot and great conversation item. You know, that kind of stuff. You've seen that stuff. Well, he buys this stuff. And in a moment of excitement a few years ago, he went out and he bought an entire section Six of them, all together, all hooked up with bolts, an entire section of seats from the polo grounds. Now, you know you know what the seats are like. First of all, they got a lot of obscenities carved in them, for starters, you know, bad words. And, uh, and there's, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Ancient polo ground fans. Most of those bad words were carved in the last days of the polo grounds when the Mets were living there. And uh, it was easy to have bad words for the Mets of those days. So a lot of them were carved into his, his seats now. Now the problem is, he has no idea, he, he's owned them now ever since they tore the polo grounds. He cannot figure out what to do with the damn things. You, you just keep them. Yeah, but have you ever tried to keep them in a very hip modern apartment on Sutton Place? You don't sit in them. Have you ever sat in a seat at the polo grounds? Five minutes and you're behind asleep. So don't come around and say you'd sit in them. Uh, in the best days of the polo grounds, sitting in a seat in the polo grounds was enough to give you a crick in the back. <laughs> I mean, in spades. So you don't just sit in them. I mean, these make a park bench look like a $12,000 piece of Danish super-stuffed velvet-skinned upholstery. I mean, they're really bad. I don't know whether you ever see they're little bitty things. First of all, they, uh, they, they were built at the time when people were a very different size than they are now. The average residence of the Bronx 
the average resident of the Bronx at the time that the Polo Grounds was built was about four feet three. He had uh, a bottom about the size of your uh, average half dollar, <laughs> and he'd sit there squashed in. You sat in those seats. Well, he bought them, and he paid good money for them. He does not now, at this point, know what the hell to do with them. But yet you can't throw them out because he paid $100 a seat. You just don't throw... Yes, oh, yes! This stuff does not go cheap. You don't think that these $50 strands of the Golden Gate Bridge are cheap, do you? You buy a couple of those, and you're not going to throw them out so quick. I mean, you know, that's the problem with that stuff. Anything you buy cheap, you don't want, for starters. That's a rule of thumb of the marketplace. If they gave those polo ground seats away, you would not want them. But when they sent $100 apiece, you said, Aha! Well, one day, this will be a valuable collector's item. <laughs> don't hold your breath. But, uh, you know, this kind of stuff... Uh, is, is Yes, I, I one time, I'll, I'll tell you, I, one of the very few times that I honestly considered myself lucky. I was really lucky. Because I had a terrible urge to do it. I went to this auction. And by the way, there are people right at this minute who are buying endless amounts of junk. You know, there was a, who wrote a great short story one time uh, about if you were to scratch the surface of the soil, in a couple of thousand years, you know, just scratch the surface of the soil. In America, let's say in 500 years, you would find under the soil this layer of useless junk that our civilization has produced. We are the civilization of junk. Absolute junk. Millions of... Uh, Ronald McDonald plastic frisbees. And that's junk. <laughs> I mean, you know, how long are you going to use your Ronald McDonald frisbee before it begins to pall on you? And what do you do with it then? Well, you give it one last frizz, I suppose. Is that what you do when you throw a frisbee? You're frizzing it? You give it one last toss, and it sails off into the distance. Somebody else picks it up and throws it. Eventually, it quietly settles down in the weeds and becomes part of the great midden heap of our time. And they'll dig it up one day. And there will be special... Yes, there will... We will, we will possibly be known as the giveaway premium culture. You know, they name cultures by the things that they find the most of when all is said and done. Say, if you're an archaeologist, you know, or... You you uh, you know you go to the uh, headwaters of the Amazon and you discover this tribe in the headwaters in the Amazon that's long since departed and you dig in the ground and you dig where they lived you see and you find they all have rubber shoelaces and they've left millions of rubber shoelaces then they become known as the rubber shoelace people you know this is how they named them uh, and that uh, we could very well be the giveaway premium people or uh, possibly even the uh, silly t-shirt people. That uh, may may fit. Uh, but if you dig underneath the surface, you will find things which I suspect would embarrass all of us if they're going to be found a thousand years from now. And I almost bought one. I'm very glad I escaped. I was standing... You see, this is the flea market nuttiness. I mean, the flea market... 
50 years from now, people are going to very have it very difficult to explain what the flea market fad of the 70s was about. In other words, people took all their junk, sold it to other people, and then went out and took the money that they got from selling their junk and bought other junk, which they then took home and installed in their house. In other words, we're constantly interchanging our junk now. Uh, and, and, you know, rather than throw it away, we just interchange it. So uh, this flea market thing, you know, has it's, it's got a long history. And the history is, is connected with what we call the auction syndrome. You know, people will buy things at auction, and any good auctioneer will tell you this, that they would not dream of buying if they were sane. They lose their sanity in an auction. Never tell you about the time that me and this guy bought an elephant foot umbrella holder. Yeah, it was, an ele- it was a hollow elephant foot. You ever seen an elephant foot? You know what an elephant's foot looks like? Well, it was, a, it was an elephant's foot that had been hollowed out, and you put umbrellas in it. Now, we bought this for a specific purpose. <laughs> we paid $3.75 for it, and it wasn't worth a penny of it. It was terrible. <laughs> but that, you know, at that point I realized what madness takes hold of you. And one time I went to the same friend. He used to go to these things at the uh, post office. You know, they have little things that says unclaimed packages, right? Unclaimed packages. It says job lots. It says unopened packages. Open bidding. So we went to this place, and we're all standing around. They had all these packages. You know, they weren't open. You ever gone to one of those? You have? Well, most of them are open packages. These are unopened packages. In other words, you didn't know what you were going to get. And so I'm standing there with Lee, this guy. It's a funny character. He's a sports announcer. He had a he was a madman for for auctions. So we went down there on a, on our lunch hour one day, and this guy's standing up there, and he says, "Now I have a case number one seventy four, one seventy four, one seventy four. Weighs sixteen pounds three ounces." in postage alone on this package was mailed all the way from San Francisco, California to an unknown addressee and it is now in this lot number 174. Number 174, how much do I bid? And of course immediately some guy goes up and says $2. And they're all bidding and finally it's sold. Well, Lee's face is getting red with excitement. And I said, what, you know, what do you, what, come on, I want to get down and have something to eat. He said, no, no, I'm waiting to bid. I said, what do you want to bid? He said, I'm going to bid on number 310. I looked down at number 310, and it was just a package. It's a, you know, it's a, I said, why that one? He said, I don't know, it's just a, there's something about it. I think there's something in that. He said, I got a feeling. And so we waited, and sure enough, number 310 come up. And the auctioneer says, and now we have number 310, number 310, number 310 on the catalog. Number 310 is a package that is four feet by two and a half feet thick by a foot and a half wide. This package was mailed in Utah. It was mailed in Salt Lake City, Utah, seven months ago to an unknown addressee. This package weighs 17 pounds, 12 ounces. How much am I bid on this sealed package? Let's take the first bid. Who's who's the first bidder? Up goes a guy, $2. Anyway, my friend bought this package for 35 bucks. Well, that's the way this stuff is. What do you mean, wow? You get out of... You, I'll tell you, you can sell burnt-out light bulbs at a flea circuit 
circus for up to five dollars a piece. Just say genuine burnout light bulb. People say, "Oh, that's a great." They don't make them like that anymore. Terrific thing. You know? <laughs> well, we took this package and both of us carried the damn thing home back to the office where we carried it. He was excited. He was going out of his bird. You know what's in it? Well, we put it down on the floor of the office. We got the letter openers out, and we started to work on a package. Now, the package had about 15 pounds of, of this cellulose tape all over it, and it was really wrapped up, and it said fragile all over it, immediate rush delivery and all that. Somewhere along the line, the addressee's name had been washed off, and they didn't know where the hell it came from, where it was going, and now and here it is. So we opened this thing up and tear it back. It had all kinds of cotton batting in there. It had all kinds of uh, little pieces of uh, felt to make sure that something doesn't break. We rip it open and struggle with it. We finally get this thing open, pull the cotton out, and what's in there? Well, I'll tell you. He bought probably 15,000 tiny plastic pencil sharpeners. You know the little kind you stick your pencil in? You know the kind you see down at the dime store? The kind, by the way, that never work? You've seen those things? I said, what the hell are you going to do with a pencil sharpener, Lee? Boy, you know, I sure won't need any more pencil sharpeners, why? <laughs> I said, Lee, first of all, nobody uses pencils anymore. They all use ballpoint pens. Now, if you can find two or three old codgers that are still using pencils, maybe you could sell one or two of those for maybe a nickel. What are you going to do with the rest? Well, that's worth a lot more than $35. It's worth a lot more than $35. Where? <laughs> Only to you. <laughs> that's the secret of the auction. Right there. The feeling that you're going to get something that's worth fantastic amounts. And furthermore, the more useless it is, the more you defend it. You think he says, oh, look what I bought. That's a stupid. No way. He defended it. And two weeks later, where is he on lunch hour? And who's standing beside him? That's right. Bidding on another thing. You know what he got the second time? Okay. This time he decided he was going to buy this round package. It was a round one, like a little drum. He figured there was something really important in that, you know, some electrical piece of gear or something like that. We opened it up, and there were bottle openers in it. These little tin types, flat ones, you know. And on the side, it said, Elect Bielefeld for city assemblyman. We don't know where Bielefeld <laughs> How much did you pay for that? Fifteen, twenty bucks. It was cheap at half the price. What the hell? It's only money. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.